Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Simonini. Here on Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. On today's episode, I had the privilege of talking to one of the busiest Broadway producers working during this pandemic, Ron Simons. In addition to being the first black producer in Broadway history to win four Tony Awards, Simons also has four shows that are currently circling the main stem, all of which we talk about in our conversation, including one which he literally has to debate with himself on air before he decides to actually mention. Simons previously won Tony Awards for The Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, and the recent Broadway revival of Jitney and he is currently represented on Broadway with Ain't Too Proud. Ron's production company, Simon Says Entertainment, focuses on amplifying the voices of artists from marginalized communities, and in my opinion, he's a phenomenal spokesperson for the changes that I strongly believe should be happening while theaters in New York and around the country are shut down. Following a missed connection on our first interview attempt, Ron and I begin our conversation talking about the perils of technology, especially how they might be making things a little bit more difficult for him during quarantine. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ron Simons. You have no idea. I can't tell you how many times my computer decides to freeze literally as I'm pressing the Zoom button to join the call. <laughs> yeah. Or it'll it, it's like I go to open up my calendar, which is where the link is for the Zoom yeah. call, and then the the application keeps crashing. And I mean it's like I've run into everything that you can imagine that's going to, uh, you know, make it challenging to do my job. Yeah. But it's okay. Yeah, and at least you are still working. And from based off everything that I've uh, heard and read, it sounds like you were keeping very busy despite the fact that, you know, for what is likely to be about a year, theater in New York is more or less shut down. That's right. That's right. And yes, I am incredibly busy, surprisingly enough. <laughs> I'm as busy with as many five to seven Zoom calls a day as I was before. Yeah. So go figure. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to get into that and I want to kind of start on a macro sense because we are in this unforeseen uh, situation and, and something that's never really happened in the history of, of theater and New York theater um, where everything is shut down for, you know, they're saying potentially nine months, but it's probably going to be closer to a year, if not more. And what's so interesting about this is that there are so many different people inside the theater community that are pushing for this to be a period of reflection and change. And because of everything that has happened with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, we have started to see some organizations, especially some not-for-profit um, organizations, actually do some of those changes. I'm not sure that the Broadway League has had time uh, to do those things from all of the drinks that they're having in the Hamptons, but we are seeing we are seeing some some things happen. And one of the things that has come from this, there was a great New York Times article about a month ago um, in which they talked about a show that you were going to be bringing to Broadway. But before we get to those specifics, I just wonder from your perspective, with all those Zoom calls you're having, how busy you are, are you seeing an appetite for change and and bringing? Uh, voices that have been underrepresented in the past to the forefront of these conversations and uh, not just from the artistic side, but from the production and the producing side as well. Have you seen any appetite for that or any any evidence that there is actually going to be some change made during this uh, during this time when everything is shut down? 
Well, I can say having conversations with theater owners that they are interested in programming content that is relevant to today and uh, would represent, you know, a step towards greater diversity in terms of storytelling on Broadway. Um, I think that uh, I haven't seen as much uh, change on the producing side, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I would like to be able to tell you that all the producers that I know have decided that they're going to work on black content or put money into black content, but I haven't seen a whole lot of that happening. And, you know, and, and I have four shows that are circling around Broadway. And if I don't hear about it happening, because it means no one's, you know, come to, to us about, oh, we want to be a co-producer on your show, mm-hmm. then I don't think it's happening. I mean, there may be things that are happening People are finding things for looking at bringing down the line in, the, in, in a couple of years or three or four or five or more years. There may be some of that going on that I don't have um, a viewpoint, in, uh, 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 a look into. But in terms of those who in the short term want to make sure that their names are associated with content that is relevant and can contribute to the conversation for positive change. I'm not seeing a, a ton of that. I, I, I would love to say that I have, but not quite yet. Do you think it's important that whenever Broadway opens in whatever fashion it is, you know, I think a lot of people are assuming there will be some sort of staggered reopening to things, but do you think it's important to have some of that content that brings these discussions uh, from the real world to the stage when theater does return to New York? Do you think that that says something not only to the world and audiences at large, but to the community itself, if there is some shows written by and produced and led by black artists? Absolutely. Not only that, I think it's going to be important to know who heeded the call and stood up and said, Hey, I am supporting these black producers, directors, writers, and creators. That's what I want to say. In two years, I would love to look at the report card and I would love to be able to see who actually put their money where their mouth is. Cause for me, People, everyone can have an initiative. They can put out a press release. They mm-hmm. can have an announcement. They can do, they can do it, something on their website. They can send out a mass email. They can do all that stuff, but that's just talk. And talk means that I'm old enough now so that I do recognize that talk um, is just that. It's talk. It's not doing. Action is a whole nother, nother thing. If you want to show me that you actually care about telling stories about people of color, that about African-Americans, African-American men who are at the center of the Black Lives Matter movement today with a post-George Floyd murder, then where is your money? <laughs> yeah. You, I feel like if, if you are serious about what you're saying, then your dollars will follow your words. Um, and so I'm hoping that that will be changing soon. Um, um, I just don't see a ton of it going on right now. I just, I just don't. I think people are are saying the right things. I've been on several Zoom calls where people are asking, hey, Ron, how are you doing? You know, in this time period, are you okay? And I am just, it's just, it's deplorable what's been happening out there. I had no idea, blah, 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 blah. So everyone's (laughs) talking. Everybody's talking. And especially when I'm on a call, because I'm almost always the only black producer on a call. So, you know, I become the de facto representation of the African-American community. Um, but not only is it critical and important, um, it's important that we essentially have some credibility by keeping our feet to the fire ourselves. You know, let's look and see 
how are we doing? Because in two years, I really want to know who said, you know what, I heeded that call. And I brought $2.4 million to stories um, told by people of color, black folks. $2.5 million. Because one producer could do that. Sure. Oh, yeah. And if, if we had 50, well, hell, we could have a huge spike in the number of stories that um, will go towards the healing process of the, you know, the anger, the hatred, the, 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 the ignorance that goes towards feeding, you know, the racism in this country. But we got to stand up and be counted. We can't just talk the talk. We have to follow through with dollars. And I know that in your career, you've worked with shows uh, both on and off Broadway and Broadway is such a different animal than working with, you know, for example, into you know, the public when, when you, with you, what you did with, uh, for colored girls, uh, last season, do you see more movement on the not-for-profit side, which they have generally, you know, in the abstract, um, a better track record of producing works of people by color um, than the commercial theater does? But are you seeing that continue or is it just everybody battening down the hatches and, you know, kind of waiting to ride things out? No, 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 no. I would think of the not-for-profit area is probably the brightest lights of um, institutions yeah. really – working to affect change. I think, I mean, everybody, every not-for-profit Broadway theater, you know, has had conversations, you know, with me and I know have already uh, programmed stuff into their season. So I would say that the not-for-profit has the best report card so far because they seem to really want to stand up and say, hey, we're bringing these diverse stories to our theaters. So I think that they're doing a better job than most. Which is, which is heartening. Yeah. And I think that that's true, not even just on Broadway, even off Broadway. I mean, I think the public, mm -hmm. look at, you know, last season's The Public, or look at, uh, uh, you know, Manhattan Theater Club. Like, look at their program in the last two years. Yeah. I think Signature, too. I mean, it's like freaking amazing. I remember I looked up one day and I was talking to my friend at uh, Manhattan Theater Club. I was like, wait, wait, you have two shows about featuring black gay men? Really? I was like, Lord, I was like, you better go ahead on with your bad self. Okay, I see you. I see you. You are doing, you, you are actually walking the walk. And you look at the public theater, like Ain't No Mo, which had me in stitches, you know. For Colored Girls, I mean, they, they, they have been pretty good about diverse voices for quite some time. So I, I, it's, it's, uh, I'm not terribly surprised that they are continuing in that effort. And I, and I feel quite confident that they are going to continue in that effort to bring uh, diverse stories. So, yeah, not for profit. I'm feeling pretty good about these days, actually. Good. Well, talking about for colored girls in the public that in that New York Times article that I mentioned uh, at the top, one of the kind of pieces of semi breaking news that they made in that article, Michael Paulson did, was that you were bringing the recent off Broadway revival of for colored girls to Broadway. Not only was that big news, but it was also announced that Camille A. Brown, who had choreographed the off-Broadway production, would be making her directorial debut on Broadway as well. I, I just wondered, what was it about this show that you thought it could make the transition to Broadway and should make the transition? I feel, you know, well, number one, as I tell anyone who asks me, <laughs> um, the most important thing about work that I decide to put my name on is it being a great story. And after it, I recognize that it is a great story, then it has to really meet three criteria. It has to be about underrepresented communities. 
it has to have high artistic integrity, and it has to have commercial viability. And when I find the trifecta in a project, even when I am full to the rafters, I will take those projects on if I remotely can. When I took on um, Thoughts of a Colored Man, I did not have the bandwidth to do that show. I really did not have the bandwidth to do that show. But that show was dead center in the middle of my wheelhouse. And it could not have been a more, there's not another more relevant piece of theater happening in the next two years that I know of that speaks to the issues around George Floyd's murder. We don't have George Floyd's voice because he was his life was snuffed out. But in this play, we have seven George Floyds as we examine seven men in a 24-hour period in Brooklyn, New York, talking about their experiences as African-American men, their trials, the tribulations, the love, the adventures, the fears, the excitement, the love, the lust, all of that is explored in a way that I think when people digest it, even if you're not African-American, my hope and desire, as it is with the color girls, that you'll go, I thought I understood what being an African-American man meant in this country. Um, I didn't know as much as I thought, but what I now know is that their experience and what drives them and motivates them is pretty much the same thing that drives me. Thereby, we can tackle again this ignorance that the African-American men are the special set of men that we can attach verbs to, like violence and thug and, and hoodlum and rap, and, and know that we are as fully formed as every single other entity subculture in the United States. So for Color Girls, I saw that it had strong commercial viability because it was a time, and this was before George Floyd. I want to say this again. Mm-hmm. This is before I even knew about George Floyd. But when the Facullet Girls opportunity, and I heard that they were doing it um, because I was raised by women in my family. I had a granddad and then my mother and my grandmother. So mm-hmm. I had a very strong presence of women in my family growing up. And I, I, and I had a number of women friends. So when I see that show and have seen that show, I see my grandmother, my mother, my cousin, my aunt, Joanne from down the street. You know, I see Corinne from school. I see all of these black women who are who have a voice through this show. And at the end of the day, what's going to make that more universal is that all women will be able to understand and relate to the stories that these women of color are doing. And all cultures will be able to understand that, because as many of us in the industry know, you know, the more specific your storytelling is, the more the universal themes are able to resonate. And this is one of those shows where the specificity of these black and brown women and their lives are going to crack open that production and those stories to make it relatable to every person on this planet. Yeah. I've, I've kind of moved by all of that, uh, the ideas of, of that and, and very much looking forward to seeing what this uh, new incarnation uh, brings. But you did uh, talk about another show that was also mentioned in that New York Times article, which I didn't mean to make kind of the center of this conversation, but it, it keeps coming back to that um, with thoughts uh, of a colored man. You mentioned the fact that you have four shows circling Broadway. I, I imagine these are two of them. And then um, another one that I know you're working on is Blue, which has kind of been circling Broadway and then the Apollo for a while. Uh, are you at liberty to say what the fourth show is? Um, well, I'm... Let me see. Should I say this in the <laughs> Broadway world or not? I will say this. I will say that I... That I 
this is me my being conservative, so I'm choosing my words wisely. Feel free. I will um, I will make sure I it's I am hopeful that Turn Me Loose about the life of Dick oh. Gregory starring Joe Morton will have its day on the Great White Way. Oh, that would be great. I interviewed Joe about the show when it was off Broadway however many years ago. Yeah, that would be uh, incredible. I would love to see that happen. So, yeah. I agree. Okay. I would love to see that happen. That's that was not only a show that in which I found Joe Morton to be a revelation because he was, it was a masterclass in acting and as an mm-hmm. actor and a producer, I really, really, really appreciated the work that he brought to that table. But also, it's interesting because the first go around after we finished at the West Side, I was getting feedback, and not all theater owners said this. But I remember one said, um well, this really isn't our kind of theater. And I remember thinking to myself, really? Because (laughs) this is a show that is hilarious. It's tragic. It's inspiring. It's uplifting. It's everything that great theater is supposed to be, but it's not your kind of theater. What does that mean? Now, of course, I I try not to jump to the race card, but I'm like, really? Seriously? This is a show that was not, you feel like a story that your theater should tell. So then that big question, like, well, what, what shows do you feel you need to tell? And I'm not going to put it, put anyone on blast here, but I think once I saw what they were programming, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, now I understand. And it's, they, in fact, were not in the business of telling those kinds of stories. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Until you and I become much better friends and can sit over cocktails at a bar and I'll go into more detail. (laughs) If that ever happens, I will hold you to that. I would love to hear those stories. But um, yeah, so so those are the things that are potentially coming to Broadway. I feel like I kind of glossed over Blue, which uh, I know was originally planning on coming to Broadway and then announced for the Apollo and then the, the pandemic happened. Um, it, what is the status there and, and why, um, what is the conversation and what is the, the kind of the back and forth between whether this makes more sense to happen in Midtown or up in Harlem? Well, I think that we're still planning and looking to the Apollo. Um, of course, the Apollo doesn't have a clear idea of where they're going to be when this pandemic comes to an end and, and when theaters are going to be reopening, there's a lot of things, you know, swirling around the Apollo, like, oh, might it become a Broadway house or might they apply to be a Broadway house or might be considered mm-hmm. to be a Broadway house, you know? And I know that one of the things that they are definitely looking at is assessing, do they have the capacity to be able to do what's asked of a Broadway house, considering they also want to continue being a presenter for a number of projects sure. um, throughout the year. Um, so I'm hopeful. I think that the Apollo was a perfect home for Blue because it is a piece that's very heavy in music. And as you know, the Apollo is most known for its musical performances and performers who have started their careers there, not the least of whom was Leslie Uggams, who at age nine premiered, you know, on her stage at the <laughs> Apollo, yeah. which has been, I think it's it's just serendipitous that she would return um, to perform you know, in blue at the Apollo Theater. Um, and it is not only because of the type of work that it is that is music heavy work, but, you know, it is in a historic part of New York City and the place itself is legendary and historic. And it felt just so right to have legends like Leslie Uggams and Felicia Rashad and Nona Hendricks. It was so many people who 
an artist who I feel perform and do their work at such uh, an extraordinary scale that they were deserving of being in a legendary house like the Apollo Theater. And also, let's be honest, you know, 1.2 million people come to the Apollo just to visit the Apollo. So imagine if just a third of those people visited the Apollo and laid eyes on, you know, our show. You don't get that kind of visibility on Broadway. You know, people come to Broadway because they see a show at a particular theater. They don't come to visit a particular theater, whereas the Apollo is is its own marketing machine. You know what I mean? Anything that is there when somebody comes by, they have so many more people whose eyeballs will land on the property because of the fact that it is a destination in and of itself. And that can do nothing but help a product, right? A project, let me say. You know, it it, it just because, you know, as we know, marketing and advertising is a huge budget for um for shows. And if we can just get a leg up by having literally so much free advertising, that just makes our life easier and makes us, gives us the ability to get our money back to our investors faster. Well, and what's so interesting about that whole conversation of whether or not the Apollo would apply to become a Broadway house, and I know they've kind of tamped that down because they didn't start the petition, but uh, it's such a big right. house like in compar- comparison yeah. to a lot of Broadway yeah. playhouses. So, I mean, that makes things more complicated, but it just it just feels like having the option to make that a, a house where Broadway shows can be, even if it's not what they do all the time, uh, like theaters over at Lincoln Center, like if they can kind of program around it and do a Broadway show once or twice a season, I I don't see how yeah. that's a bad thing for New York in the theater community at all. I don't either. I think it's a, it's actually greater opportunities for people like me mm-hmm. who can, you know, put their property somewhere, you know, over time. And so for me, I mean, I don't know. We, we were talking about... Um, you know, lowering the number of seats because 1600 is too too big for a playhouse. Um, so we would cordon off a number of the seats so that we had a more intimate playhouse to play in. But I think as a as a musical theater venue, it is perfect because sure. it it has enough size, enough space. It has it it just it is uniquely positioned of the theaters that I know that are not currently on Broadway. It is the one theater that comes to mind when I think of if I had a musical. Where could it go? It could certainly sit at the Apollo. Yeah. And, and I think like we talked about at the beginning, that, that that would be a change that would provide opportunities for underrepresented populations, specifically black artists and black producers. I think that would make a, a huge impact on the on the community because it, you know, like you said, it's about visibility. It's about having the opportunities to tell the stories. And if that happens in the space like the Apollo, it certainly would make other people stand up and take notice and and pay attention and maybe consider putting their money where their mouth is more than they currently are already. I agree. I completely agree. And I don't say that they would do this, but I suspect that the Apollo would lean towards stories of people of color um, Mm -hmm. if they could for their Broadway, uh, if they had a Broadway uh, dedication or name or location, what have you. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you kind of going through all of these things, and I'll, I'll let you go on this one last question. As you are working through this pandemic and all of those Zoom calls that we talked about and trying to stay busy and try to plan 
for whenever the theater, uh, you know, does come back, whether it's in terms of this, uh, you know, diversity of representation and the voices or anything else it is. I just wonder what you think as an incredibly successful producer, someone who started as an actor, if there was one thing that you hope changes out of this experience, whether it's just because of the time that people have uh, to kind of contemplate things or anything directly involved with this shutdown. Is there a lesson that you hope that Broadway and the theater community at large learns from this potentially year long shutdown? Yes. Um, I hope that they learn that the time is now for finding new voices. Um, Broadway does not have a whole lot of theaters available where new voices of color are heard. That's why having thoughts of a colored man and blue for that matter um, come to a stage is so significant because we tend to want to support the known quantity. And I'm sure Lynn Nottage is my friend and I think she's brilliant. And I think that she is one of the most gifted playwrights working today, if not, Possibly V, but um, there are other voices from younger, different Latinx. There are voices that 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 come from uh, communities that we don't know enough about because we haven't spent much time in them. You know what I mean? And I'm hoping yeah. that what this this time has done is it's given everyone pause to say, you know what, we have to go look for new stories that fit with the changing times, that this country is becoming more and more diverse, that this country is having to grapple with such deep set racism, systemic racism, and that what our responsibility is as storytellers is to lead the way from the darkness to the light. Our job is to make sure that the stories that serve to reduce the the hatred, the ignorance, of racism and homophobia and all the other isms are addressed. So hopefully we are looking at new voices. That means collaborating with regional theaters who already may have access to those new voices, uh, putting calls out for, you know, voices to, to, to be heard from different parts of our society. It's really important that we use this time to say it's time for us to reset. It's time for us to not just wait until new work comes. How do we seed new work? How do we find new work? How do we encourage new work? How do we develop new work from diverse voices? Those are the intimate questions that I want all of us to be grappling with and that we can all work on individually. Because think about how many independent producers there are. You know, there's the Scott Rudens, there's the Kevin McCollums, and, you know, there's the Jeff Sellers, Jeffrey Sellers. But the vast majority of producers on Broadway are independent producers, right? And it's a lot of us, which is part of the reason why I'm, I, I feel so sad that there are only six black producers on Broadway, but that's a whole other conversation, which we can talk about on another day, again, yeah. over cocktails. What I'm hoping is, is that these producers who are the gatekeepers, they're the people who find the content that says this is what's going to be um, on stage on Broadway in three, four, five, seven years, that that those producers take stock, reevaluate, and figure out ways to find and develop new stories that 
represent the diversity of our culture and not what if Broadway has been for the last 400 years. Yeah, I I think that that is a a hope and a wish that is shared by many people, myself included. So I am excited to see you be one of the people to lead that charge when Broadway uh, eventually comes back. And uh, I'm, I'm wishing you the absolute best with all of these productions, as well as, you know, the normal things that we wish each other during this time period, you know, health and all of uh, all of that super important stuff as well. Indeed. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I you know, anytime someone gives me a platform to encourage Broadway producers to think more globally and more diverse ways is a good thing because I'm I'm talking to people individually, but the word needs to come out as an all hands on deck. Greater diverse stories need to be told and starting right now, not in 10 years, not in 15 years, but literally right now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have contact information for Ron Simons and Simon Says Entertainment in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com, as well as a link to my 2017 article in which I spoke to Joe Morton about scandal and Turn Me Loose potentially coming to Broadway. Tommy Moore is produced and edited by me. Special thanks, of course, to the always inspiring Ron Simons, James Weir, Caitlin Green, and the man without whom none of Broadway radio is possible, James Marino. Thanks again for listening, and remember, I'm somebody, somebody, and nobody's gonna hold me down. Also, always get a second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. <laughs>